Thanks for listening to Philosophy vs. Improv. You can find out more at philosophyimprov.com. If you like the show, we'd love you to leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. Thanks! This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. I'm Mark Lintemeyer, a philosophy buff who wants to learn improv. And I'm Bill Arnett, an improv practitioner curious about philosophy. Each of us has come with a lesson in mind to convey to the other person. We have two rules for this conversation. Number one, we're not going to say what the lesson is up front. And number two, we're not going to take turns. When the lessons seem done, we'll tell you what we learned. Our judges will decide which lesson produced the most profound effect. I believe... Well, I'm excited. Are we taking turns? Are we not taking... Are we taking turns? (laughs) I think there might be some lag today. There might be. I Oh, don't make me go power cycle my modem. I really don't want (laughs) to... Don't want to do that. Here, let's do a little test. I'm going to say one, two, three, go. And we'll try to say go at the same time. And then you're going to do that back to me. You got it. And then if one of us sounds very much later than the other, we'll know that it's the internet's <laughs> fault. One, two, three, go. go. One, two, three, go. Go. That was a slight, perhaps millisecond. It was okay. It wasn't like we were uh, calling overseas. No. We're, we're no. only a couple hours away. Probably the signal is going overseas anyway. I'm not saying you definitely should not cut this out of the final product, but that's the first time I've seen a good a lag test. That was an effective lag test. I appreciated that. Well, I actually do that on, if I have more than two people, we always do that to sync up. But I just trust that my editor will be able to figure it out. I think that's great. And if there's anyone out there listening at home, how do we judge lag? I think that's great. I'm going to credit you with it. Maybe you stole it from somebody else, but that was fantastic. I think you should incorporate this. You should segue into your opening. You're the one who starts today, our match. Mm-hmm. So is there uh, something about being in sync? You, you take it. I won't tell you what to do. I guess I can say there is something about being in sync. Certainly in the greater improv world, people talk about group mind and all those things and being in sync. And I think, well, this is not necessarily the lesson, but we'll get to the lesson in a moment. But it's this notion of, well, how do you get there? How do you read people's minds and whatnot? How do you achieve that kind of a thing where you're reading somebody's mind? And my answer is, generally, you're reading people's minds all the time. You go to the store, you're not really reading their minds, the checkout clerk, but you understand how the checkout clerk interaction should go, how it generally proceeds. And when things aren't right, you're usually pretty quick to diagnose. Oh, it's not scanning. Does that make sense? You know, when we're living in this world we all live in, we have an intuition that we just take for granted that's just constantly with us in this world. So if we place our scenes in our world, then that intuition will come with us. I thought we had to like get our menstrual cycles in sync or something. In order to... <laughs> well, that's, hey, I do not have a menstrual cycle. I'm not saying man shouldn't or can't. I do not. Metaphorically, perhaps I do have a, a menstrual cycle. You can get them on eBay pretty cheap. I mean, it's not, <laughs> there's no barrier anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought it would be fun to maybe do another quick scene here. Let's do it. And there'll be the, the rule for this scene is at no point can you do anything that you think is necessarily funny or creative or interesting, not even interesting. Our goal is to be as boring as possible. However, the other little rule is you are allowed to question or ask or be curious about your partner's behavior. Does that make sense? That sounds like exactly something that I should be 
yeah, it sounds very tailor-made for my performance in the past. We are building week to week. And it's not like, I'm not fixing problems. We're putting another brick on. That's the other thing we get. We, people, sometimes people think like they're wrong, 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 wrong until they're right. It's like, no, you're writer and then writer and then writer and then writer. More correct, more correct, more. Does that make sense? It does. Could we put a, a fairly hard time limit on? Would love to. Just so that the audience knows we are going to be boring. We're going to try to be boring. I don't know if it's possible. We might just be such entertaining individuals that the entertainment just oozes out of our pores, but it will be nothing that I will try. I will follow your lead, Bill, your direction, not your lead. Maybe you will be entertaining, but I am not allowed. Yeah. If you do say or do anything that you fear might be entertaining, it is always in reaction to something I have done or not done or am, am doing there. You're going to be watching me closely looking for ins. Okay. There'll be some lag there, at least, at least a half second, but I will, yeah. I will be watching. Over time, it will be a, a time traveling. What's that thing where you get to view what's happening in the future through your, never mind. Go on, go on. <laughs> through your uh, group of three mutant people living in a tub of gel. There's that. I was thinking more a device in particular. When the sci-fi reference does not come readily to mind, then you should let it pass. Let's start this thing. I'll set a stopwatch too. Maybe we'll go for 90 seconds and see where we get. Are you ready? Okay. Well, we've got a, an artisanal loaf that was really good. It's fresh today. We can't, that kid just came out this morning and we've got some baguettes as well. You looking for just like sandwich bread or you want a sweet or savory? I'm really unsure. I've been shopping. Okay. Can you tell me a little more about what is the artisanal? What does that actually mean? Well, we source all of our flour and all of our ingredients from local farmers, and they all uh, use organic produce and whatnot. And they try to use uh, some grains and things you may not be used to, and it's it's uh, usually um, uh, legacy, not legacy. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, really old her- heritage. Yeah, yeah, that's actually true. Heritage and heirloom varieties and whatnot for some of the grain here. But it's real good. It's real tasty. It's all, it's all very. It's got a, a nutty feel to it. You don't even really need to put butter or jam on it. It's real nice. Um, and why would you think what's nice about bread exactly? Oh, it's, it's bread. I don't know. It's a, it's a bakery. I <laughs> if I can get you some bread, I'd love to help out. I'd love to help you make your decision. But, uh, if you're, you're standing in a bakery, so I figured let's talk bread. Okay. What's the dark one on the, on the right there? Oh, this is nice. This is a rye and uh, it's got some spelt in it as well. It's nice. It's a little spicy as far as bread goes, but it's, it's pleasant. It's nice. Why would rye be spicy? What is spicy in it? Well, it's spicy. It's spi- I don't. Is it the heirlooms? Sorry, is it, you said something about the about the heirlooms. Rye is naturally spicy. Okay. If you ever had rye whiskey before, it's got a little little heat in there. Okay. It's just it's just part of the the seed. Is there like a proof, a level of spiciness of the rye? A way of that was ninety seconds. A little bit over ninety seconds. Uh, I think it was <laughs> a little ninety and a bit little change. But we were right in the middle of an exchange. I don't know. Did I fail that? <laughs> I try. <laughs> no, you didn't fail it. You were taking all of your cues from me. If you were strange or weird or had something, it was based on something I said. Does that make sense? I did. And you said heirloom. So it was very hard for me not to just immediately <laughs> jump on, yeah, well, on, on what a heirloom might be because I would like to weave something with a heirloom. That was a misspeak. But you know what? Welcome to improv. I, this is going to happen. People will make innocent mistakes. I know it is heirloom. Uh, <laughs> however, those, they happened. It happened. The audience heard it. You heard it. Maybe I said it on purpose. I don't know. Welcome to improv. That, that's how this thing works. 
And is it important that the terms that are used be clearly defined in the scene? No. In terms of like the terms like heirloom or (laughs) there are people in the world who don't know what an heirloom tomato is or an heirloom grain or anything. I don't think I'm one of those either. (laughs) Perfect. You're allowed to say, I don't know what that is. Huh? Heirloom. Is it a tomato that is passed down through the generations until it becomes a dry little... Tomato tomato varietal, varieties of tomatoes. It's not a uh, globe or a beefsteak or a, the sauce one. I can't think of the name of the, a, a cherry tomato or a plum tomato. It's a tomato variety that isn't grown anymore because it's not really commercially... It's not conducive to machinery. So they're lumpy or strange or weird. They're very tasty and very flavorful, but they quit growing them on an industrial scale. So they've fallen out of general usage. Because they might look weird or strange, but they're very tasty. So people have kept the seeds of these old varieties of apples and tomatoes and grains and rice and all these things, and they have kept them and grow them. However, they're more of a specialty item because they're just not conducive to a factory farm and canning. They just they don't really do well for that. And how do you know if someone claims that it's an heirloom tomato? Just because they get a lumpy one and they say, yeah, this, let's sell this as an heirloom one. <laughs> I trust them. I guess I shouldn't. I'm I'm not a botanist, nor a historical anthropology food collision of those trades, but I trust them. And maybe I shouldn't. You know, there are a number of reasons why one might question, and verification is, of course, one. I've been led to believe that the way to achieve this groupthink is by asking these questions, but it seems like there's a limit to when it's actually not achieving groupthink, when it's actually irritating, (laughs) pedantic picking at little things the other person has said, expecting them to have some sort of a great foundation under everything that they say that can be revealed to you in something that's easy to sum up. Well, I think you revealed quite a bit to me in those 90 seconds. Clearly, you don't, you're not a foodie. That's what that revealed to me, is that you're not quite down with the food scene and interesting foods and crazy foods and yummy foods. Not that you should be or need to be, but it's going to make our interaction interesting because I obviously am a foodie and there's going to be things that we're going to talk about that might be the best improv scenes are analogous to the situations that you then tell your friends about that night over beers. I went to this bakery today and the guy is trying to sell me like on an $8 loaf of bread. Can you believe that? What? $8 loaf of bread? Well, yeah. So I go in there and you tell, and it's, and it's like these things that happen to us, these little inside moments in our lives that affect us to the point that we want to tell our friends about it. It wasn't like I went to the bakery and the baker is doing these really funny jokes with punchlines that I want to tell you about. It's just that the situation is such that I think my friends would empathize, sympathize, understand, get, and appreciate the difficulty. And on the flip, the baker is going to have the same conversation when you leave to the people standing in the back. Oh, man, this guy came in, a real normie, didn't know what heirloom varietals were. I had to explain rye bread. Can you believe it? You know. Uh, I'm going to have that same, through my own point of view, my own idea of what this interaction was like, and the fact that I choose to tell people about it. Yeah, I don't know the moments in our lives that we say, I got to tell my friend this. And other moments in our lives, like, no, I don't have to tell my friend about that. So in asking a question, in trying to, I think this is why we pretend that we understand each other. And maybe in a scene, you only have to pretend to understand each other. And that's that's part of the goodness of it. But one of the things that prevents you know, the kind of questions that would enable us to get over our fundamental ignorance of each other. 
is just not wanting to be noteworthy like that, not wanting to be embarrassed, to look foolish. That's a huge thing, uh, trying to dodge embarrassment or foolishness and trying to meet our own expectations of what this should be or should sound like or should be is about 98% of my job teaching people to improvise. I think we should do another scene, but this time I think you should start. I think I've started all three scenes and I've laid down a pretty simple context. I, I would love, I would love for you to try one of these, Mark. All right. I'll start the timer whenever you're ready. Uh, hey there. I'm sorry we had to, uh, beam you up like that, but we we're trying to get like the, uh, the representative samples of the life from all the different parts of this place. I understand you're a, a piece of rye bread. That's correct. That's correct. And what makes you so spicy? I hear it said like that. It's spicy. First of all, these aliens have invaded my world. You guys are all kind of a little weird and strange. And I'm, it was odd to get, I've been beamed up. I've been beamed up. Uh, Yes, we have the beam. Wow. I mean, some of our sci-fi stories include beaming of things, but I didn't imagine. I mean, I'm trying to use your vernacular. I'm also like trying to figure out exactly what kind of uh, voice you do the rye bread talk like this? Rye bread just talks. Oh, okay. You know, and, and uh, it doesn't really have too much too much to say. What do you want to know about rye bread? I, I, this is strange for me. We saw your ship circling our world. It freaked a lot of people out. You have sent some messages of peace. We didn't think we would just be anonymously beamed up for science experiments. It was a sign that said, uh, what in your language, rye bread, and you were next to the sign, I guess I'm a little unclear. Are you a- Are you in charge here? Are you in charge? I'm I'm the uh, I'm the interface. I'm I'm all you need to know. Uh and and I thought that maybe either you are the bread or you just are a uh, I see you have legs. So I'm a little confused whether you just were in charge of selling the bread. What kind of being are you? Yes, I'm a baker. I'm a human. Oh, okay. Baker. Okay? All right. So maybe we have to maybe we have to look a little further to get the the actual bread. Because it seems like you're the middleman, and we should be talking to the bread if we want to know what the bread is. Bread doesn't talk on my world. Let me just say that right now. Bread does not talk. So you're probably okay talking with me. Hold. Awesome, Mark. We'll start. That was a little overnight. It was about two minutes. Okay. Thank you for ending that. I appreciate <laughs> not making me follow up with my dumb idea. <laughs> well, it, it's not. And this is something that I'm trying to get across here. This is not even my thing for today. It's my thing for all four weeks, five weeks, is that a terrific idea with a bunch of knuckleheads ain't so terrific anymore. And a quote-unquote weak idea with two great players is going to sing and going to be great. That's not the lesson for today. But what I did want to say is there was some confusion as to whether or not I was a loaf of bread or I was a human. At the beginning, I thought I was a loaf of bread and was playing as though I was a loaf of bread. Now, not everything in my mind is text. I didn't say all of my assumptions. I didn't voice all my assumptions. So when we pivoted to me being a human... Well, I gave you the option. We didn't... Yes, we pivoted. But the audience is unaware of those presumptions that went unspoken. So that pivot, I'm very curious if there's anyone listening out there in TV land, quote-unquote TV land, if they felt like that pivot was horrible. What the hell? Clearly, you, you were a loaf of bread. You even said you were a loaf of bread. But here's the thing. I don't think it matters. (laughs) <laughs> okay. I don't think it matters. Ultimately, with one giant exception. Have you ever read a book that started slow but ended awesome? Sure. And you, you might recommend it to people with the caveat, it starts slow but ends awesome? Yes, Hegel's Phenomenology starts really slow. When you get about page 600, it really takes off. 
Have you read a book that started awesome, but then ended terribly? Probably. Probably. I would posit that people are less likely to recommend books that start awesome and end slow than start slow and end awesome. Makes sense. (laughs) That's all I'm talking about. And that's something we can definitely leverage in our improv as well. The first 30 seconds of our skit started really slow, but then it just really ramped up to almost nothing. Well, but there's still more to go. There could be more in there. That's something too, is that scenes can be saved. Not to save like they were ever broken, but made cool and fun and whole when we find things later on. Now, what constitutes a scene? I'm now thinking that you know we could just call this little break that we took when you had just pivoted to being a baker, and we could continue the scene. But is it the same scene, or is it a new scene? We're going in with a new set of assumptions. What do you consider to be a scene? I think it is the same scene. From the eyes of the audience, even though assumptions may have been wrong or may have changed, it's still the same thing. Because we are groping to find this thing, the lights are off as we discover this lump in the room and the lights are slowly coming, becoming illuminated. Well, of course, our assumptions are going to be incorrect at the beginning. Of course, it's going to take time to really figure it out. However, once the lights are fully on and we fully understand what's happening, well, then it should be clear to all parties exactly what it is that we're engaging in, if that makes sense. Yes. And now the first thing that we did, I know that we, from our point of view, we recorded one line at a time and then we stopped. We discussed at very at great length what was going to be said next. Okay, that's not true. And then we, and we edited those together. So was that a series of scenes or was that a single scene? Okay, that was not, that's not true. Okay, if we did that, would that be? <laughs> the definition might be kind of arbitrary. In my mind, what is presented to the audience is a scene. And this kind of goes to my own personal philosophy around improv. And again, there may be some people who are into improv who've heard these things and hate my guts. And that's fine. But I always personally try to think about the work from the point of view of the audience from someone who has zero knowledge of what improv is, doesn't know the rules, doesn't care about the rules, just wants to see an entertaining product, whatever that means. So what's a scene? Whatever the audience says a scene is. And if they are numb to the fact that we are talking between lines or texting between lines, well, then they don't know it and maybe they'll feel upset or burned by it later if they ever found out, but going to call that a scene. Yes, and of course, in a film, a scene could be something that was You know, you only had a single camera and you set up 20 different times or at least (laughs) combined two different, you know, things with the camera over one person's shoulder and the camera over another person's shoulder and did that scene multiple times and patched that together as, and nobody questions whether that counts as a scene because clearly it's not just the audience, it's what is being presented to the audience as a scene. Now there's another word in the improv world and probably music world as well, a beat, the first beat of a scene. And the idea is that in any conversation, I think I talked a few episodes ago about picking up your friend from the airport, that conversation generally has a couple beats. The first beat is, are you flying okay? Do you need to use the restroom? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? And then there's usually a pause, the what next moment, followed by, so, how's Larry and Diane? Are they still, you know, just, it's just more of the conversation goes somewhere else. And you can kind of say that's a beat change. Now, if we were on stage improvising just in a car driving home from the airport, we might want to say, well, it was kind of one scene. It was one long scene about a drive home from the airport. But it was segmented, and we'd call those segments beats. Now, I would say also that the word beat has other meanings within the improv world. A whole show can have beats, and each beat can be a collection of scenes that are connected either by the form or thematically. And that can be considered a beat as well. So what is the essence of beat that combines these different definitions of beats that are used in different ways? Clearly, there must be something that makes them all beats. Yes, 
I think it is that we understand that they are held together by something, that they are not entirely independent. And we may do a run of three scenes that are very independent from each other and different from each other. Kids going shoe shopping, a guy cutting the grass for a crazy old lady, and then, you know, two aliens in their spaceship bored out of their minds because hyperspace is broken, you know. And those three scenes are certainly different from each other. But what if they all were connected thematically? Well, then you could say, well, yeah, they're the part of one beat. And that beat is boredom. That beat is, we could have that kid shoe shopping just does not want to be there and just is bored out of their mind. And, and the parent is just, well, try these, try these, try these. Oh, this is terrible. And maybe the, the person cutting the grass for the crazy old lady just getting no instructions. He just, he just needs some instructions. Where do I cut? Where do I not cut? And just not getting those instructions. And those aliens in the spaceship, you know, it's just, they can't get the hyperdrive working or whatever. And they're just like, this is ridiculous. This is so stupid. So in some ways, they are different from each other, yet are held together thematically. And we'd call that a beat. Now, the reason I was just hectoring you about that, I think it was in our, our third discussion where I was talking about self-esteem and you stopped and like, what do you actually mean by self-esteem? What is this thing that you don't believe in. And I, I noticed I sort of dodged that and gave an example because it really, like part of the critique was that this was something that when I was in grade school, we would have like whole assemblies of get high on self-esteem, like as if we knew, because of course you know what that means, you know, even though that's a weird technical term for a child, but they could give a flavor of it through, they could do skits, they could demonstrate what it was. It wasn't like, here's the set of necessary and sufficient conditions. <laughs> the The strict definition so you can see what counts as self-esteem and what doesn't count as self-esteem. And so if something is merely entitlement, maybe that is beyond the scope of self-esteem, etc. One second, I've got a child begging on the door. I- I'm, I'm really busy. Open the door and say what you have to say real fast. Hello? Is something on fire or... Amelia pushed me. And I didn't mean to. Did you apologize? Yes. Okay, guys, fire or blood only. I'm sorry. The editor can eave that out or keep it in to demonstrate my parenting. I'm trying to think of a good segue to make that part of the same beat. I think that we've already demonstrated at the beginning of this podcast that if you want to edit something out, and I always tell people in podcasting with, you can't then make a joke about it. You can't make a comment on it because then I have to leave it in. Yeah. Now we have to leave all these things in. Now we have a theme going. We're working on a theme. We've seen it twice and we can get it in a third time and really make it pop. So I am now, here's the fun part about improv. Our brains might be racing. What kind of third distraction can we have? But maybe what we should actually think is like, let's not force this third distraction. It will probably come semi-organically. And if it doesn't come naturally, an actual outside interruption none of us planned on, an interruption may get very, very close. And just a little bit of pushing on, on our part might make it occur. And those are the cool, natural, discovered things that improv is really good at. Yesterday, I was outside with my wife and she had picked up these uh, for a recent graduation party. We'd have these things that are like each person has a little handheld net and there's a ball. There's two balls that each have a little rubber band kind of, and the net has a hook on it. And so you could use the, the, the net as a slingshot. And then you try The other person tries to catch it. And there are two of these at the same time. So we found unsurprisingly when we were just using one ball at a time, then the other person, you know, we, we could t- have time to aim. The other person could have time to catch but since there are two balls, it invites you to do it simultaneously. Sure. To have these things in the rocket and fire at each other. And then you also try to catch it. And I, of course, we found that is much more difficult to do, even though technically the ball is already on its way. By the time you have to worry about the one coming after you, it's still a matter of multitasking 
And what, in a philosophical discussion, ends up keeping people single-minded is that even though there's different ideas coming from each side, you know, unless you're a Socratic dialogue where it's really ideas coming from one person and the other person is just a pawn, the word that we haven't figured out to replace straight man. But in this sort of circumstance, we have to keep, whether we're talking about an improv scene or talking about this weird format that we have here, we have to have a ball in the air while we're thinking about catching the other one. I was ashamed of myself that last time I, I had to play that dastardly trick of pretending that I didn't remember anything you taught me so that the judges would rule in my favor that, of course, your lesson did not have the most profound effect, because if it did, then I would remember at least something. <laughs> well, I, I, did, I also didn't bust you on it either. I didn't crack on you either for missing it. What does that mean? Does that mean there was an advantage that you did not press and thus are a loser? Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, back to that self-esteem stuff. You know, I, I, being called a loser is not good for once. It was a question. I'm just asking questions. Well, I mean, would it be a good idea to bring up, well, clearly the teachers know who the loser is. Let's bring up Robbie. Well, we all know Robbie's a bit of a loser. This is self-esteem. This is, this is, so kids have an example. This is poor self-esteem. All right, Robbie, you can go sit down. There's usually one kid that they, they think is resilient enough will be able to stand that sort of treatment. And so it, you could even pay a child. It's usually a ringer. It's like a small adult that they just have to be the bad example. The, yeah, the kid who's already resigned themselves are like, yeah, I'm, I am the loser. I've already repeated fifth grade. I have been told by everyone I'm a loser, so I'm just going to lean into it and enjoy it. I was going to say, Mark, we've enjoyed playing what if with this ridiculous school teacher scenario. How close are all of our talkings? Our talkings have been on the outside saying, well, what if this happened? What if that happened? What if the teacher said this? What if the kid said that? What if we just were those people? You mean in a scene or just for the rest of our lives that will determine? Well, just for you for a scene. Let's just decide for the next week. Those are going to be our characters and our family members are just going to have to adjust to that. Well, just for, for a scene, for a scene. All right. This is something that like a lot of people like being funny. And what if this happened and then this happened and this happened and they say it from a point of view of a detached person. And then the doctor says this and then the patient's like, what? And then the doctor's like, open your mouth, you know. And take off your pants, you know, and then the, and the person's like, what? What if you just were those people? And take that instinct to understand what funny is from an arm's distance and actually just be those people. It sounds like you're giving why God would descend to become mankind because, uh, you know, you miss something if you're just up there uh, outside space and time referring to stuff. Exactly. I'm not sure how that whole metaphor you just gave applied, but I'm just going to agree with it. And, and, and <laughs> yes, we've just solved a fundamental mystery of Christian theology. Why God indeed. And every possible meaning and understanding of the word why. This is the end of the, the match itself, just because the clock is saying so. <laughs> <laughs> to end on God. We didn't get our, our third interruption. I'm waiting for it. It just seems sometimes it doesn't happen. We can end. That is fine. Sometimes it just doesn't happen. Boy, there's a philosophical thing, huh? Leave the audience with something to think about. You know, where you expect something, but it doesn't happen. You know, wow, that's, that's kind of heavy. Before we get the judge's ruling on this, I want to say a little about what I came in here trying to release control. Sure. To a good degree. And you made it a little easy by having this skit be only 90 seconds, because that is <laughs> the primary thing I've been concerned about in the past skits, is that it's going to be a Saturday Night Live level chunk of awfulness. And of course, I have in mind the uh, Donut Head Saturday Night Live mocking sketch from The Simpsons, where I think Krusty the Clown was saying, oh, we got a family with people with donut heads. 
That's the whole joke. We got to go on for another 10 minutes like this. Yeah. Oh, yes. We definitely want to avoid that. I will say this, Mark. I think I got your little lesson down. This is the most confident I've been. Okay, tell me what my lesson is. With what you were going for. What, what was I going for? I think you were going for something philosophical about the meaning of words. What do words mean? And if we can't even agree as to what words mean or disagreements around what words mean and the arbitrary nature of it. And, you know, words don't exist in nature. They're simply a construct of man. So how do we even appeal to some higher authority when it comes to words? That's my armchair philosophical take on what you were going for. Yes, you are 100% right that that is how I was starting off. As usual, we didn't end up kind of focusing on that. It was more just an intrusion thing that I was doing or a way to, to push the conversation along. In some cases, actually was beneficial that asking for definitions can be, you know, of course, it's a thing that can make us more like-minded to make sure we're talking about the same thing, to make sure we're not confused. Sloppy language is the big enemy of philosophy departments, people who are just amateurs talking philosophy in their dorm rooms. It's very hard for them to just not talk past each other because they don't have a set of shared understandings. But that said, demanding that someone have a definition for everything before they use it is obviously pedantic. Sure. And there was a particular experience I'd given newbies a warning against stoicism a little bit in a past episode. This was my experience with Ayn Rand, who is notorious for being the favorite of a lot of very hard right-wing libertarians. But if you actually read her books, one of this book on epistemology, and I came away with this reading this at age 20 or when, you know, somebody on my dorm floor had recommended it. And so mm-hmm. I, I got into this book and I came away thinking like, wow, I got a lot of work to do because according to this book, If I don't have clear definitions in mind for every single thing that I want to use in my philosophical language, then I have failed. That is the prerequisite. You can't even do philosophy until you've got these definitions worked out. And that is entirely wrong. Like definitions are much more ad hoc and it's not the way it works in ordinary language and you should not expect it to work that way in philosophy. Well, it also sounds like she's essentially saying, you can't challenge me because I can always pull that card. I can always play the, but what do you mean when you say, okay, and never mind, I retract my complaint because you can always say, if I, if I start getting into the philosophical weeds, you can always start arguing over word meaning. I'm sure there's a name for that in the philosophy game where someone's just like, we can't even have a discussion if we can't even agree on what the words are. I had entitled this linguistic hygiene, which is not necessarily a term of art. But there's been a lot of uses of that over the years, even by much more respectable. If you've just come after a thousand years of people doing theology and you think that all of that is very suspicious, you might, for instance, as David Hume did say, unless your words ultimately boil down to particular things that we can experience with our senses, then they're meaningless. And so you could have something like justice, but that is a complex. It is a lot of specific experiences that are somehow melded together into, you know, concepts over time and then ideas about these concepts. And so we could, you know, have very sophisticated things. It's an abstraction. Yeah. At least in theory, we should be able to boil everything down. And then, of course, then you turn to the language of God or something and you might say, well, look, there's nothing that corresponds in our experience to that. So just stop talking about theology altogether. We should just, it's not that it's false. It's literally meaningless if we can't break it into this. And those projects always end up to be Interesting sounding, but ill-founded as well. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I mean, it's true with improv, you know, is this, we can have all the improv theories we want. I got to get on stage and do it in the moment. 
that's a wonderful acid test for, can I do it? Because if I can't, clearly it's not going to help. You get a lot of people who are very good improv analysts and are very good at looking at an improv scene after the fact and analyzing it. But what they come up with in no way helps synthesis. You know, the most amazing analysis of a book or something. But if I can't take that analysis and then turn it into, if I can't utilize, can't leverage it, well, then it's just kind of useless, isn't it? Or not as useful. Yes. And I came into today trying to be very open, not only to actually remembering the things that you say improv-wise, which, no, that was not a ploy on my part last time. I really did just have an empty brain. And that's going to happen maybe more often than not. If I stop and take a little note, as I did today, then maybe I can have a good guess. But I also wanted to be open just to add more balls in the air to, even if I come in with a philosophical lesson in mind, you know, that's actually not the way that I do tutoring. I usually ask questions and find out what they're interested in. And so sometimes you've, in these discussions, brought up philosophical points that are legitimate philosophical points, but they're not the thing that I came in on. So I don't, sure. I don't nourish that. But that is clearly failing at one of the improv lessons that you're trying to teach. And every conversation is improvisation. And so I should be yes, anding those things, even if it bites into the time of saying the thing that I came in wanting to say. So now I'm happy to put it all in the postscript like I just did now, rather than (laughs) pressing it on you throughout. At some point, Mark, the artist, will make a decision as to what to yes and what to let go. That's up to you, and that's an expression of your own personality. Some people get very caught up in, what would you do, Bill? What's the right choice at this fork in the road? And it's like, well, yeah, there's some forks in the road I got some advice for. There's going to be other forks in the road. It's an opportunity for you to express yourself artistically, not to get snotty. And sort of one of the ongoing themes from the beginning for me in this is the conflict between making artistic decisions in the moment and having a piece, an art being a product that you can back off and look at it and sculpt it and do all that kind of stuff later. And that's appreciate it for what it is, not what it was supposed to be or what could be or what should it be, but what happened. Yes. And even in, you know, doing post on an episode here or doing things in mixing a song or whatever that I put together, you can very well, you know, take different levels, have different levels of respect for the source material (laughs) (laughs) for the momentary thing. And I know of musicians that like purposefully, like we're going to leave in that terrible mistake you made because I wanted to capture this moment and the magic of this moment. And of course, it, you know, if you play live at all, which I do not as much as, you know, as, as I record overall, but there's countless micro decisions when you're in front of people that you have to make in the moment that you can't back off. But there's a safety in that, in that I'm for the most part, not an improviser as a musician. That is something that I'm forever working on of like actually getting comfortable doing guitar solos or whatever. I brought the song to the table. I've recorded the song, or if not, I have a piece of paper in front of me at this point because I'm old enough that I don't try to memorize things is the structure and that I, my empty brain, which will in a performance situation, all the lyrics will just leap out of it at a moment's notice. So I having something there to rely on as the structure is, is my default at this point. That makes total sense. Total and complete sense. Now we've got two things we need to do. You need to tell me what you think my lesson was. And I have a very brief libertarian critique that I would love your opinion on. Okay. And maybe that can be in the bonus show. I don't know. So I think that I'll start from where you started with, which is how shared background information can feed the dynamics of a scene. So if I were a foodie, 
and we would have one kind of skit because I would have the resources to draw on and we could be like-minded in that way. But the fact that I am not a foodie and was playing a character that was even more clueless than I am as a person, not knowing what rye is. Of course, I don't actually know why rye is spicy. That is, that is a real thing. Is all rye spicy? I don't know. I'm going to say there's a chemical in it okay. that makes it spicy. Ricin. That makes sense. Ricin. It's, it gets full of rice. <laughs> the nerve agent, rice. Just enough to make your tongue tingle. It's rye. I mean. All right. So was that merely a point you were making along the way, or was that the lesson? The lesson was a little bit deeper, and it didn't quite, in my mind, I was thinking we could get through three or four scenes, and what, what I wanted to get at, ideally. Now, that lesson was laid in, and I thought that was valuable, for sure. And I'm not going to run away from that lesson. I think that's, you actually restated it quite perfectly. But I would say that this idea that we don't need to be funny right away. And in fact, it is the moments when we aren't funny. You know, if our, if our funniest scene is funny one line out of 10, we are winning. We are doing great. Now, those other nine lines aren't swings and misses. That's just us being baker and customer. If we spend the majority of our time just being baker and customer and put our brains there, when a funny thing pops up or a strange thing pops up, or you not knowing, or me, me mispronouncing heirloom or the third interruption that never happened, When those things occur, well, we can go service that interesting thing, that strange thing, and then run back to our nine lines out of 10 just being hanging out at the bakery. Does that make sense? It's almost like the rhythm section, and we can play the rhythm section indefinitely, and then the little strange things are, what? You say heirloom? Did I? I don't know. Did I? I meant heirloom. You said heirloom. You know, that's a little bit of a guitar solo to continue that thing going on. But those are moments that diverge from the drum and bass. Yeah, that sounds like one of my guitar solos. In other words, not very good. (laughs) That twice now I have jumped in and made something about your grammar, which is just a particular instance of, I don't feel good yet being mean. (laughs) And maybe because I'm not doing it quite right. But the thing about the loser in there, even though that was, you know, made... There was some contextual sense, but I, I felt bad even, even coming out of my mouth, even though we're pretending. <laughs> Many times people who are young improvisers have a very, I don't say bipolar, but a very polar view of, of emotions. It's happy, sad, angry, glad, you know, not angry. It's all those little micro emotions in between and ambivalent emotions that really make really strong actors and improvisers are very, very good at playing middle grounds and ambivalence and all those things that give things texture, and that's all those little emotions between happy and sad, those little slices in between. It took me a long time. <laughs> I didn't have too much of a very formal acting background. It took me a long time to figure out I can be disappointed yet concerned. I'm concerned that my child brought home a dead frog. I'm disappointed because I don't want them to be a serial killer. And this, does this mean this is some kind of obsession with dead things? But it's my child and I'm going to give them this is the first time they've done it. You know, so there's just, you can have a lot of stuff going in. What emotion is that? And I don't, I don't think there's, talk about meaning, meaning of words. You know, I don't think there's a label you can fit on that emotion. I'm disappointed that you only brought home one dead frog. <laughs> you wanted more. I, I, what are we going to eat tonight? You think that's enough? Yeah. <laughs> it goes to freshness. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So I said a little while ago that I would let one of the judges introduce him or herself. And that was just a dangle. I think that for the moment, it's still, it'll come. But for the moment, uh, we've got enough on our plate. I think there's been enough interesting things happening. The the, the clock is running a a bit long. So we we just don't have time for it today. I'm sorry. But can we get the uh, decision? 
okay, they're not, they're not giving us the decision. They're just, I think that I should have maybe gotten the decision before I made that announcement. The decision is being held hostage. There's some uh, rude gestures. I kind of think they don't like either of us. Well, I think we'll do this kind of like a skins game in golf. We'll just roll this over to the next one and we'll just double the, this double is going to be double or nothing. We have a, we're going to call it a draw today. Uh, I think they were, they were both uh, pretty interesting and uh, freewheeling and maybe they're just coming together as one thing and there can be no winner because uh, then both would win because that's what self-esteem means. Wow. You tied that up very nicely. Thanks for listening. Thanks everybody. Wang. And then the music does its little wang. And then now we can talk for a minute. Do you want to hear my critique of libertarianism? Yes. I forgot. I would have done that before the wang, but uh, (laughs) post-wang it is. I'm not saying I've read extensively on the topic, but just from what I get from minor readings from from social media and Wikipedia, it seems like 90% of libertarianism is essentially humanity already tried that from about the beginning of humanity up until Mesopotamia. You know, I feel like <laughs> so much of the philosophy is like, oh yeah, that's that's kind of caveman philosophy. It's like, I feel like we've been diverging away from some of those core tenets starting at Hammurabi. You know, I feel like it's like, you really pine for the old days, uh, <laughs> you know? I mean, you're opening a big can here that we don't have time to, to deal with, but I'm going to think about how best to approach this as part of a full episode. But just as an initial thought, I think what you're referring to is is unrestrained use of power on other people, whereas I think libertarianism stresses the liberty part, which actually does ironically require some sort of protections that we can't actually hurt each other <laughs> before we could then exploit each other unrestrictedly in an economic way. That's where it ends. It, it seems at times very uncivilized. Maybe that's my point. Yes, and there are many flavors of it in terms of what 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 do we need to uh, have there be money, and is money necessary for? Uh, you've completely frozen up on me. Did we get cut off here? Now the all right, you were frozen for. Now I can hear you. You were frozen for a few seconds. Yo, no, you were frozen. That's the third interruption. Boom, bingo. There it is. Internet. Yes. One, two, three. Go. Yeah, there it is. There I it thought is. You're, you were going to, at some point, call me out for eating uh, watermelon throughout our, our discussion here. And that would be the third interruption. Watermelon's fantastic, and I, I don't want to put any weight on watermelon doesn't serve. I had such a busy day before we started today that I did not eat substantially before 1 p.m. here. So this is my... No worries. No worries, man. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that. That's my view on libertarianism. It just seems like that world existed in about 4500 BC. And the majority of people were like, mm, no thanks, I don't know about this. Some people certainly liked it, the people that benefited from it, but I think ultimately I would rather have been a nobody in ancient Rome than a somebody under the thumb of the Mongol hordes who were trying to destroy anything that they couldn't buy. So without either trying to engage that fully or approving it, I'm going to say thank you for sharing there it is. your thoughts. That's a- right at the end. Just open a can of worms at the end. Yes, and let's be done. Perfect. <laughs> so, wait, do we have any recommendations before we go, or do you want to skip that today? Oh, gosh. Are you familiar with... We talk about Brad Neely. Tell me about Brad Neely. You sent me a link, but the audience has not heard about this. So, yes, go for it. Oh, well, he's done a lot of really fun things and funny things. He, his probably most known thing is the uh, Harry Potter, the first book, as though it was a book on tape. And this is about 15, 20 years ago. But it is the entire book as though it's a book on tape. 
and people have synced it up to the movie online and on YouTube and whatnot. And it's just, it's just really ridiculous. The guy's a, a wordsmith. He's really, really fun. And, and, uh, we can talk in depth about it later. But if you like the Harry Potter movies and you like funny jokes, it's a fun thing to watch. All right. We will link to that. My recommendation this time is I talked about death last time and there's a great course from a guy named Shelly Kagan from Yale on YouTube, the whole course on death. So if you look up Shelly Kagan mm-hmm. death. It is, it is a fascinating, I drew on it, not, well, not for our discussion, but for, for past things. So it is getting into many different issues surrounding that. I will not go into detail. The Brad Neely thing is called Wizard People, Dear Reader. Gotcha. This was a fun one, Mark. Time flies by as always. I, I, I look up and an hour's, an hour's gone by. I'm out of town next week and returning that following Monday. So let's make sure we can get something in the books for early in that first week in July. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, listeners. Bye bye. Take care. Bankrupt. 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 Bankrupt.